After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to Mind Rolling Podcast. I'm Raghu Marcus. Uh, say your name, sir. I am David Silver. I am here in New York and looking forward to this particular podcast with relish. Isn't that amazing? You're in New York and, you know, you sound like you're right here. I know. It's, it's the 20th century. Yeah. It's a great um, century, isn't it? <laughs> Not. Uh, really. And, okay, before uh, we get into anything, we have to do the Amazon thing, because we've been told we have to do it. We have a well, great I, guest, but before we do I, that, I don't want to sully his presence. That's it. Advertising. No so sully. Let's, of... Just let's do the advertising. Amazon, go to mindrollingpodcast.com, the Amazon portal, bookmark it, then use it. And uh, if you have discretionary funds and you want to buy things from Amazon, I just bought a microphone cover for $17.85. Anything like that, anything you want, buy uh, from there. Wait. It helps us. We have to do this at the beginning because we've been told if we don't do it at the beginning, no. Wait, wait, listens. wait, That's, wait. Because yeah. you keep saying the same thing every time. Well, what You're talking heck? to people well, about discretionary income. Discretionary income is sending us a donation or buying a T-shirt. That's discretionary. Going to Amazon and getting what you need in your normal day-to-day -day life, that's just part of life and what you're already doing we already see when you do that and you buy through amazon we get a small piece of that so that's the whole point it's not discretionary okay i'm sorry it's not discretionary income i've been saying that for months but i am you know from england i know nothing uh I, i'm sitting in the presence correct. of two geniuses who know everything so you know hell but i meant discretionary by the fact that even if you don't need it buy it for christ's sake that's right, there you go. Okay, that's a good you know, point. You don't need it, and you have a yen to buy a book by, you know, I don't know, Baudelaire or, or, or Dada or, you know, Ramesh Wardas, buy it through Amazon. And if you want to buy a, 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 lamp, a set of lampshades, buy them at Amazon. Okay, all right, enough with the lampshades. Um, and Because we have somebody sitting here you know, ready to, to talk to us about uh, some quite important subject. And uh, welcome, Bruce Budry Margolin. Thank you. And uh, everyone, uh, Bruce is, a, is an old, old, very old friend. And we, um, we were, actually, we weren't in India together uh, in the early 70s. We were apart by maybe six, eight months. Mm -hmm. I had left India, and then Bruce came, and he met Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji. 
and um, and it was after we all came back, probably in the late 70s, that we, we finally did meet around uh, where the monkey god was, which was the Hanuman, Hanuman at the Hanuman Temple in Taos, where we just were a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, uh, and, um, you know, Bruce, we always ask everybody when they come on the show, what were the stressors that you had when you were a teenager, what were the stressors, and what, and then what were the transformational things that uh, allowed you to to uh, realize that there is something else out there? I could be happy. I mean, that's the way I put it. You know, for me, and actually, Dave, we have a lot of synchronicity around music, so there was, you know, uh, that that happened. And of course, uh, psychedelics. But what were your stressors back then? You know, I know you a little bit, and I know you had some. What's the term stressors? You mean things in life that caused me to think twice about what it was all about? Yeah. Oh, that kind of thing. Unhappiness, well, general, well, absolute. I, I did, did have a little. I had a little bit of conflict that my bro- when I was very close to my older brother, who was eight years older than I was, and much my mentor. You know, taught me very close to me. He unfortunately passed on when I was just turned fourteen. Mm. And um, like I say, it was very close to him. He taught me my religious training. He taught me a lot about school. And just before he passed on, he talked to me about the fact he was going to pass on, and we discussed that. That's how much closeness we had. So that was an impact. And then I tried to recover that, you know, basically by you say, being happy. You know, somehow get on the merry-go-round and just don't get off. You know, that's the idea. And then about when I was, then I graduated from high school and, um, uh, my father passed on when I was 19, so that was also right. a big impact on me. Then I, and I had one brother, but he wasn't very supportive. I love him, but you know he wasn't. That wasn't his personality. So I was kind of on my lo- own at 19, and so um, I basically took care of myself. My mother and I were close, but I didn't live with her. I'd lived with friends since I was about 19, and uh, over the years I. Went to law school, worked my way through school, became a lawyer. It was very exciting. I went traveling in Europe, you know, went to places like, each, you know, to um, Greece and et cetera, mm. et cetera. But I wanted that less, but I wasn't to law school, so I didn't want to really give up that um, schooling. So I went back to school, and I had went through school, and I got a very successful practice. And then I heard, you know, Ram Dass speak, and that's what caused me to think twice about what I was doing. And then later on, I was, had been running for public office, and then I ended up saying, "I'm going to go. Maybe I should go to a shrink to see if I'm just flipping out or not here. I mean, <laughs> give, I'm going to give up a lucrative practice, very popular in the neighborhood. All these different attributes we call in the West, as Ram Dass calls them. So in turn, I went to a shrink. Some guy I didn't know who he was. His name was Harry Siegel, and he listened to my story. He said, well, "Gee," I said, "What do you think?" He said, "Well, I know where you're going. I wish I was going with you." And he gave me a bunch of books, including Be Here Now. Mm. And that set me on the path to, not that I intended to find Maharaji, nor did I intend to find Ram Das, because certainly the Be Here Now implies pretty clearly that he was not to be found. I guess that was part of the mm. the, the message. And But nevertheless, uh, that caused me to end up in India at um, ultimately um, at a teachings course regarding Vipassana. And then from there, I met Ram Dass all by serendipity and Ram Dass sent me to Maharaji and that was about August, October 2071 I believe 
And where were you then? In October? 1971. 1971. Where were yes. you? Uh, in October 1970. No, you were September, there. I'm, I was I'm going in to November. correct you because I was there then. No, you were. You were. You were in 1972. Wasn't yes, that late? Yeah, okay. because we didn't know each other. Anyhow, this has to be put in context, folks. So obviously here is this really, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, faced some really tough things as a youth, two, two major deaths in a in five-year period while you're a teenager. That, that qualifies for really knock-you-back kind of st- stressors. Um, and then, you know, made it to India and met uh, Neem Karoli Baba and, you know, Life changed. Life turned around. But, and here's the caveat. Prior to going to India, I'm summarizing for you a little bit. Uh, he, uh, Bruce, was a successful drug defense attorney in Los Angeles, and primarily representing. Uh, and, and you know, you'll correct me here, but uh, uh, pot cases. Mm-hmm. And he dropped that. And went, I mean, that's how strong that was for him. I mean, not only that, he was running for office. I mean, he was enormously successful young guy. How old were you? You know, what, early 20s? Yeah. Well, I became a lawyer in 19, when I was 25. 25, okay. And then by the time I was 28, I had this whole crew of lawyers working for me because I came, off at a, came out at a very special time of law school. That was the years that the Supreme Court was very upset about the police conduct and enforced a lot of search and seizure laws. And when I went into practice in 1967, many of these cops didn't know these new laws. And the way they suppressed evidence was the way they taught cops not to break these search and seizure laws. And yeah. I just got out of law school. For some reason, I was a terrible student until I got to law school. I got to law school somehow. <laughs> really? I don't know. I was blessed. I, I was just had to, I got... I was just one of the best law students because you didn't have to actually have good grammar. You didn't have to know how to spell. It was perfect for me, okay? Mm. Just as long as you could spit this stuff out. Anyway, I was a good lawyer, and I knew this stuff very well. I worked my way through school. I was taking care of myself. I said, well, they made me a lawyer. I'm going to go out and fight them, okay? And it turned out because there were so many people being busted for pot, as you know, and there was kind of a judge's thinking about the matter. This isn't quite kosher to send these kids to prison. It was still prison sentences, you know? I'm talking about one to five years if you didn't get probation. Mm. So, but meanwhile, the search and seizure laws were just coming out. I came out of law school. I knew these laws very well because I was a good little law student. The cops didn't know anything about these laws. Oh. So every day, you could just get evidence dismissed maybe two or three times in one court day. Oh. I mean, yeah. Oh. So, so it made my practice mushroom. And then I oh. got involved with writing for the different newspapers like the Free Press, etc. And my practice went huge. Mm. And so... so so off he off he went and um, and has been practicing uh, since that time uh, to this day has a major practice in Los Angeles award winning uh, as well uh, for uh, what was the award you won for the what? bar that was a few years ago I went to this thing and you were given an award the criminal defense attorney of the year yeah, yeah that award yeah so he really knows his stuff here and there's a lot going on. Wait, before we even go there, though, I, we have to, you know, I mean, there's a certain claim to fame from that era, and uh, David knows a little more about this uh, than I do, but the whole thing, uh, Bruce defended Timothy Leary. True. Talk, tell us that story a little bit. Okay. Well, let me tell you, I also wore another hat, and we'll get into that in a moment, but Timothy Leary, I got back from India, and um, I hadn't really, I 
probably didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't want to go back to this law that, at that moment. I didn't want to go back to the idea that I had all these people working for me. I felt it was a little bit too, you know, too much on the pulpit. I wanted to just have a simple little practice again. But um, at that time, I had a positive meditation in my home. I had the first one in the United States. As you, it was one of the Apostle uh, teachers that was authorized. Meditation. By, We've talked a lot about yeah, it, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, we kids. espouse it a lot here on the show. And just so then, I got a phone call. This phone call was from uh, Art Conkin, who was the head of the Free Press. He asked me to, about Leary. If I could help him, he was just been arrested hmm. for being captured in Kabul and brought back to the United States, and he was in Santa Ana jail. And then I got a call from Ramdas, who also called me and said, help Tim, help Tim. Of course, to me, Tim was like a god from all I heard about him, you know. So I went up to see him, and I said I was sent there by these two you know, people he knew. And he wanted to hear more about my scene, and I told him as much as I could. And then basically I told him I didn't want to do his case just to be of service to him, basically. And so that's how we met, and he mm. was totally on board with that. And that was a ex- very, very exciting trial. <clears throat> it wasn't that he was going to get found innocent of escape. That was probably yeah. a foregone collu- conclusion. But he had been in prison, or sentenced to prison in Los Angeles, in Santa Ana, because he had two ounces of marijuana in the car. Now, most people would not go to prison for that kind of thing, even in those years. They would get some kind of probationary yeah. deal. But him, 51-year-old college professor, they sent to prison. And when the judge sentenced him, he held up an article that Leary had written for the free press, basically trying to teach people who were providing the sacrament, whether whatever dope it might be, is that you're supposed to take it yourself first. You're supposed to explain to your to your customer how it affects you. You're supposed to take it with them, trying to give them the idea that they had a responsibility when they were dealing drugs. Of course, the judge didn't interpret it that way. He held up the article and says, you see this article? You're going to prison, okay? And so he went to prison, and he was in prison. It's a long story. You want to hear the story about Leary first? Well, yeah, I do, but okay. you can shorten it. Okay, I'll try to shorten it. Anyway, he, make, he made plans to escape. He climbed over a fence and onto a pole and then on a wire got dropped off on a high wing you had no idea about any of this of course no I wasn't I wasn't his lawyer at that moment uh-huh. I'll tell you how he escaped it picked up by the weatherman goes to Algiers hangs out with uh, Eldridge Cleaver taking acid they weren't happy with him he went to Switzerland had a high life there some guy arranged for him to put him in jail because they wanted to write an article or a book and then he got out of there somehow and he went to Kabul he gets captured on the boat it gets captured on the airplane in Kabul Brought back to the United States, and they were very happy. He was a very, very wanted man, okay? That's when you represented him yes, when he came that, back from that, Kabul. That's what happened. Yeah, there that's, he was. that story. That's right. the story. And he he, was, now, he was now busted, and he was in jail for escape. So my point was, it wasn't so much they didn't know he had escaped, okay? The question is for the public to know why he was waiting in jail, which was two ounces of marijuana, because mm. the president of the United States had said he was the most dangerous man in the country. All about the drug... You know, Which is the drug, Nixon? The, drug, the Nixon, yeah. Because yeah. the drug epidemic, as they put it, was going wild. People were taking acid all over the country. And uh, Art Linklater's daughter walked off yeah. the bridge or something or out the yeah, window. And right. I was all Timothy. And, and so that was, that was the playing ground. So we wanted the public to be aware of the fact that he was not in jail for anything heinous. It was just for these two ounces of weed. So at least he wouldn't get stuck away forever and ever. And the trial took three weeks. 
I had everybody testify there from all the people you could imagine. It was so great, all the guy, professors from Harvard. The judge, when I started the trial, said, hey, you know what, something, you, my young man, I've had a lot of trials here in my day. I've been this judge, Nexac jail. I've never had one go more than three days. You understand me? Yes, Your Honor. Young man, if you try to pull any shenanigans here in this trial, I'm going to make sure you suffer. Yes, Your Honor. said, Judge, I only promise to offer you the type of offenses or defenses that I can think of are rational, reasonable. I'm not playing any games. Mm. Said, okay, I'm watching you. Well, then I presented these crazy defenses. One <laughs> was he was he, the, the law wasn't designed to punish this kind of space, this human space, this consciousness, this super consciousness. <laughs> he said, where do you get that from? I said, well, Judge, they just granted, I forget his name right now, he was a big Black Panther, killed a cop. At the time he killed a cop, he claimed he was unconscious, and they said he was innocent. I said, well, there's unconscious, there's got to be super conscious. Okay, young man. <laughs> so then I went out, I had three or four other defenses he, that he had escaped because he was teaching the, the universe that we have to escape from the planet. Was right, part of, yeah. And, yeah. He, and he also had an LSD flashback, of course, and that's why I had Timothy, I had, I had um, Harry Siegel come into the play there. So I had everybody, all these Harvard professors came, talked about how he was like beyond, beyond. He was like Christ, okay, to them, okay? <laughs> and they were sincere. Really? And they talked about the different exams they gave him while he was in custody over the years. They compared how he answered those, and he realized he actually wrote those exams because he was the head of the psychiatry department for the uh, Kaiser Foundation for many years. So ultimately... Um, but we had a big problem. We wanted to see he was, in a, he was in a flashback state. And we had, then comes Harry Siegel, the same guy that I met when I was the, went to the shrink. He volunteered to come up there and talk to him and can't understand and said, yes, I, my observation was he was in a flashback experience at the time. And part of that is that you have to feel you have to escape. You can't be confined. It's overcomes your motive. Of course, that kind of defeats our claim. In a sense, he left a nice poem for the prison guards, you know. <laughs> you know, follow me to freedom. I guess he wasn't that overwhelmed. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. nevertheless, Harry Siegel gets to understand and says, that's what I believe. Was not, he was on the influence of LSD. And then the prosecutor said, well, how could you possibly tell us this? What is your experience that you could possibly have to be able to say when a man's under influence? And I said, well, I've seen about a 1,000 patients as a volunteer at the free clinic in Los Angeles, you know. So that was pretty impactful. Wow. However... Time magazine described the end of the trial. Of course, Timothy Leary got on the stand too and made a complete mess out of the trial. He talked about he was a, if he was a car. It was so mixed up, it was ridiculous, and so no one understood what he was talking about. <laughs> and ultimately, to make it a long story short, is that um, Time magazine described it as follows. And I like that line because it sounds like I was a good lawyer. It said his eloquent defense attorney described his client as a eagle binging his wings against a cage but it took the jury only an hour and a half to turn him back into a common jailbird. That was mm. sad. Mm -hmm. That wow. was it. Wow, wow, wow. But he was a remarkable guy, and a lot of people came there, including people like uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg, and all these people came to see me and talked to me and gave me heads up about the whole scene mm. and told yeah. me how to watch myself as well, you know? Mm. That's interesting, Bruce. You came, I knew in the 60s uh, when he was teaching at Harvard and um, used to periodically have times with him in, in Beverly Hills over the years. But I made uh, a film called Beyond Life, The Life and Death of Timothy Leary in uh, the late 90s and was with him when he uh, passed away and for the two months before that, I should say. And it's interesting because when he was really sick, 
uh, with cancer, he refused to take pharmaceuticals resolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, they were offered to him all the time because he was in very bad pain. What he did have were these little crackers, Ritz crackers, I think they were. Exactly, we would have to confirm that because he was with me all the time. And with a little bit of butter or marmalade or jam and some, uh, some cannabis on top of that. And he used to eat those all the time. And we would blow uh, nitrous oxide into his mouth <laughs> from balloons, either blow them directly into his mouth or we would take it and then blow him back in there. And he was very happy just, just eating this marijuana. And um, that was until the last few weeks of his life when, when he was in terrible pain. And then uh, we set up a morphine drip for him because he just couldn't, he just couldn't function. He was hurting so badly. But he was very vociferous with me and everyone else around him at that time about the curative powers of marijuana. Yes, they took some of the pain from him, but what they did for him, as I remember, as for most of us, was boost his spirit, uh, enrich his, his shakti, if you like, and make him able to, you know, interact with everyone around him, even, at, even when he was in the dire straits of cancer. And as a segue, um, I would like you, Bruce, and I can't imagine anyone frankly, who could answer this question better. Um, whether what you've seen in these four decades since those times, those early times when you were a young law lawyer, and now, um, what are the main uh, advances in uh, awareness of the true value of, of uh, marijuana and the um, dissolution of the worst myths about it. What are, the, what are the main advances that we can look at right now in those four, 40 years? That's huge. I mean, it would take us hours to talk about all the benefits that have been discovered by science and by the public becoming aware of it. It was, um, the, the reality is, is that this is the truth of marijuana is coming out, which has been beautiful because not only, I'm mean, a criminal defense attorney, I also have been the director of normal in Los Angeles since 1973, which is the national organization before marijuana laws. So wearing that political hat, and the fact I ran for office numerous times as a political marijuana, expected as a marijuana legalization attorney, I felt respons some responsibility the fact that although I wasn't promoting marijuana, I was promoting change in the law, they kind of go hand in hand. People are going to have more access, and there's responsibility. So I was always been concerned that God forbid someday something would come up that said it was terribly detrimental to human health or otherwise, and I'd have to bear the burden of that. So I feel very vindicated continually over and over again because I've been saying the same thing since 1967 when I practiced law and first saw my first marijuana case, and I was in shock as a young lawyer. They say they're putting them in the same cell as the rapists and the murderers, and what have they done? And what are they punishing them for? I mean, it couldn't make sense to me, you know? And though I was very, as I said, very fortunate beginning to win a lot of cases, sometimes they would get some time and I'd go to the judge and say, just why are you putting these people in jail? What have they done wrong? What's immoral about what they've done? What are the dangers involved? And their only excuse for punishing them was that they broke the law. That's all they could say. And so I went on many programs over the years uh, arguing the marijuana's law should be changed. And so we'll be seen as, it's so obvious. You can't go anywhere. I can't open a magazine, you can't open a newspaper without finding out something else that shows the benefits of 
the medical use of marijuana and the detriment that continued prohibition has cost us in people's human lives and the cost of the community. It goes on and on and on. It's probably your guess know as well as I do. Mm. Raghu, I'd like you to go into something you read about yeah. some of the incredible origins yeah. of this prohibition, which blew my mind when you mentioned that. Well, did you write that? Yeah. that? The, the first um, point here is that the New York Times, and Bruce, you well know this, the New York Times came out last week, only last week, uh, in the, first in the opinion page, uh, but representing the paper and the editor uh, editors, uh, for the um, legalization of uh, marijuana and the uh, immediate uh, uh, cessation of the prohibition. And then they said, and we're going to do articles as we go along here to kind of show, you know, why we came to that conclusion. So now uh, this is the one that uh, it caught my eye. It must maybe one of the first ones. The federal marijuana ban is rooted in myth and xenophobia. I mean, that's the the headline, right? So that caught my eye, and I'm like, okay, so I'm just going to just give an idea, and then, you know, obviously uh, you, you can respond. The federal law that makes possession of marijuana a crime has its origins in legislation that was passed in an atmosphere of hysteria during the 1930s. And that was firmly rooted in prejudice, prejudice against Mexican immigrants and African Americans who were associated with marijuana use at the time. This racially freighted history, racially freighted history, lives on in current federal policy, which is so driven by myth and propaganda that it, it is almost impervious to reason. I mean, these are pretty strong words, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's totally. pretty amazing. Um, so, uh, so they talk about how, uh, you know, the cannabis known as hemp was widely grown back in, you know, in the 1800s. Uh, the practice of smoking it appeared in Texas border towns around 1900 brought by Mexican immigrants who cultivated cannabis as an intoxicant and for medicinal purposes, as they had done at home. Wow. Within 15 years or so, it was plentiful along the Texas border and was advertised, get this, openly at grocery markets and drugstores, some of which shipped small packets by mail to customers in other states. <laughs> the law enforcement view of marijuana was indelibly shaped by the fact that it was initially connected to brown people from Mexico and subsequently with black and pure, poor, poor communities in this country. Police in Texas border towns demonized the plant in racial terms as the drug of quote-unquote immoral populations who were promptly labeled quote-unquote fiends. As the legal scholars Richard Bonney and Charles Whitebread explain in their authoritative history, the marijuana conviction, the drug's popularity among minorities and other groups practically ensured that it would be classified as a narcotic attributed with addictive qualities it did not have and set alongside far more dangerous drugs like heroin and morphine. 
By the early 30s, more than 30 states had prohibited the use of marijuana for non-medical purposes. The federal push was yet to come. I mean, I honestly, I had no idea about this. The, 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 <clears throat> who, you know, that this thing is so racially and xenophobically based. Well, it's, you know, there's a book called uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, written by uh, Jack Herrera some time ago that many people have read. That, has, that explains that in there as well. Uh-huh. And matter of fact, he went into the congressional record at the, uh, at the uh, Smith- Smithsonian and found the transcripts of the arguments and the, that when they went to the different states to legal, make it illegal, and it was so clear in their statements that they were it was all based on race at that time, and a fear because it wasn't just the Hispanic American they that they identified it with, they identified it with the black musician, hmm. which was popular amongst a lot of people, including the white women, you know. So they saw that as a threat on top of it. So if they could keep them down, and also. It's a great segue to search your home, search your house, search your car, search your anything, because if you can smell it, you can search, right? So also mm-hmm. the law enforcement liked it. And then in 37 was a time when we ended the prohibition on alcohol, and that was the impetus to say, what are we going to do with these teams of narcs? Of those days, the alcohol Bureau, uh, yeah. people, you know, so they it all fit together. There's other aspects of it besides that. It's written in basically the emperor wears no clothes, but had to do with the nylon industry, thinking they could put out the hemp industry. Hemp, they could deal with the do away with the hemp at the same time because hemp's still illegal, as you know, in the United States. We have to import it all from out of state, like places like Canada and mm-hmm. other countries. So anyway, yes, it's obvious. That's what the bottom line was. It was racially or uh, racially. Um, biased people that saw the preserved users were the Hispanics and the, the black musicians of America. Then there was a couple trials put on where there were some killings and the defendants, in this case, I think it was some young girls that were involved or something, claimed they smoked marijuana and they were found not guilty. And that felt made them more convinced that these uh, drug causes them to kill. And then there was also the term uh, hashish which means assassin, assassin yeah. and it was basically thread the word that they would use that before they went out and did their deed to give them the impetus to do it I guess so all these things teamed up mm. but in fact this next month in my office we're having a, a big event not to celebrate but to say to commemorate the first Californian that was arrested for marijuana in ni- it's 100 years 1913 California already had marijuana laws on the books even before the feds did, like many states. Yeah. And the first one arrested was in, was in Sonora, California in 1913. And this month again, on September 13th, in my office in Los Angeles, we're having a party. Normal. Who was he? We don't know who he was. We're just commemorating the fact that it's been too long. We've got to stop the prohibition, 100 years of prohibition. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. yeah, just to That's commemorate the fact okay. 100 years is too long. But we yeah. have we have other people there. Just my point is, it's been going on for a long time. Yeah, and you know, and another thing, it it says here that Congress in uh, cons- uh, in 1930 consolidated the drug control effort in the FBI, you know, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, mm-hmm. led by our resourceful Commissioner Harry Jacob Anslinger. Right, so he was primary to get the Feds to do what they eventually did. He became the architect of the pro- of national prohibition. How about this? His case rested on two fantastical assertions. One, the drug caused insanity. 
that had pushed people towards horrendous acts of criminality. Others at the time argue that it was fiercely addictive. He may have not actually believed this propaganda, but he fed, he, he fed it by giving lurid stories to the press as a way of making a case for federal intervention. Remember that movie? Uh, Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness, yeah. We, we ought to play a little of that. I, I was thinking about that. This narrative had a great effect, uh, and it led to the enactment of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. So um, now make another plug for Timothy Leary right now. Yeah, Timothy Leary got busted before he got busted in Santa Ana when he came across the border with his children. He had a couple. He had like an ounce of weed in the car, and that was made a big deal. They also gave him a big punishment, but he got out on bail, and he struck down and the by the Supreme Court that tax act with the it's called Leary the Leary case. Really? Yeah, he struck it down because it said that in order. To if you have marijuana, you'd have to go in there and say who you are to buy the tax, and therefore you're incriminating yourself. Uh -huh. Self-incriminating. Yeah. But I think behind it was the fact that they didn't think it was right for this Timothy Leary to be in prison for this marijuana case. So that, and then those kind of things influences the judge's thinking mm. on these appeals, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to jump to something because mm. we're talking about, you know, and finding out that, you know, the, the racist and xenophobic uh, origins of... of uh, what the government has done and propagated since the basically the turn of the, the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. Um, so fast forward. So they're doing that, um, and fast forward to California, Los Angeles in particular, because Bruce and I were just talking the other day, and and um, we were talking about how the fact is that all of this this change has been you know enormously. Um, very quick it's it's been very quick i mean you know california's had medical marijuana for for many years now and so collectives have developed and so on and so forth and now you know and people don't quite know the intricacies of the law related to growing it and uh, distributing it to the collectives that or the stores the collectives and then the stores and so on so i love this little thing it ended up that uh, our it's the opposite of free enterprise is what what you know is what they're promulgating there. Tell us about what's going on and why you know it's it's basically uh, you know China over in California related to the pot business. Yes, well, let me tell you two things about the 1996 statute, California uh, Prop 215, is it didn't fill in all the blanks. What happens with laws is that for the blanks to be filled in, people have to be convicted. And the cases have to be appealed to the Court of Appeals. And then they come out with their clear decision-making processes about things like, and what I'm here talking about right now is profit. You want to know what profit is because what happened <clears throat> when we passed Prop 215, the cops were very upset about, for some reason, the profit potential. Our side was saying, what are you talking about? It's irrelevant, you know? Profits always assumed, you know, you have to have some. You're, it's America. It's a capitalistic society. And they said, okay, we're going to compromise this. We're going to say profit is not authorized by this bill. Unfortunately, the courts interpreted that means that you weren't allowed to have profit. But then again, they still haven't described what profit is completely, okay? <clears throat> we don't have any basis to know what profit is because the only case that talks about profit involved a caregiver 
and the court said profit was up to the jury to decide whether, whether it was there or not. To me and my guide on marijuana laws, which I put out, I say profits obviously what's left over after operating expenses and over, you know, overhead expenses. <laughs> but um, it's not defined, and therefore the defendant also has a recent ruling has a duty to say there was no profit. They have to prove it or raise reasonable doubt. So that's another problem in the laws. The laws are very unclear. As a matter of fact, we got legislation right now that's being considered AB 1214 or something or 1262 about getting more and more regulations around this, these different matters. And our Attorney General in California, Kamala Harris, who has the responsibility as that office holder to come up with what's called guidelines, she's been unable to come out with guidelines, she claims in a letter she wrote to the legislature, saying, I'm not sure what the law is in the area of profit, dispensaries, and edibles. So I can't come out with guidelines. Do something. But mm. California, we're all tied up between the Republicans and the Democrats, right. and nothing gets done. Right, the same, same. Yeah. Old. But the example of it, because I, I was just asking <clears throat> Bruce, you know, but I said, so if you, you know, you can grow what, seven plants or something? Six mature or 12 immature. Six mature. So if you grow six mature and you get the, res you know, if you do well, you can probably get maybe a pound or two or something off of that. But not enough. Okay, it's not enough. But the thing is, you know, you can get this thing shortened so you can do it within probably 45 to 60 days, right? And you keep turning. But you can't provide that to the collective. You cannot sell it to the collective. You can only sell to one collective. Is that the truth? That's the latest ruling. Just came down about a month ago. This now, is communism. Now they're limited to the, the, the members of the collective can only participate by providing it to one collective. And I don't. the idea, I guess they want to keep it in a closed circuit, you know, this is the idea, I suppose. But it seems like you could be a member of more than one collective. I mean, I don't know why you shouldn't be able to. The whole thing is really, when you, what bothers you and bothers me is it seems like marijuana is still taking the, 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 uh, the subject of a beating in all different aspects, like in this aspect in particular. It's obvious. Why they pick out the marijuana, you know, legalization terms that you can't have a profit, um, you can't only have a certain number of members of your collective, and they just recently ruled that cities or counties can ban cultivations and collectives altogether in their cities, and they're doing it. So we're still taking a beating like we're second-class citizens. And it's completely frustrating and hurtful that they have, can't treat us as other American citizens and try to stop this continued harassment and unfairness that surrounds marijuana mm. users and the whole marijuana issue. Yeah, the, This is how this article ends, by the way. The federal government, and they talk about since the 70s, states have started softening the penalty. I mean, so, I mean, people know just how bad the penalties have been. I mean, you're talking about, in like uh, Louisiana, uh, for instance, created sentences ranging from 5 to 99 years without parole or probation for sale, possession, or administration of narcotic drugs. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about some bad, badass stuff that, that has gone on and still is going on. Don't go to Texas either, right? Uh, right. And <clears throat> right now, um, there are at least five or six people serving life only for marijuana offenses in a Jesus. federal institution. I have one yeah. client that's serving 10 years. I have a petition 
along with Michael Kennedy's office, for asking for a clemency for these marijuana offenders because he recently came up with a statement that they were going to consider the disparity of long-term drug sentences for certain types of mm -hmm. crimes. He was probably talking about crack cocaine, and particularly that was because it caused an extraordinary punishment, just it was crack versus powder. Yeah. But we're trying to fit within that to get those people out of right. jail. And it is sad. The people are still going to jail. Don't kid yourself. Especially if God forbid you have some priors or a strike. They're going down. They start moving product from Northern California down to um, L.A. to their dispensary. They get the wrong judge, the wrong lawyers, or whatever else happens. They they get hurt. They get six months. They get they get put on probation. I mean, it could be. It's not easy. Okay. Right. Right. So the people are still going to jail, although there's some courts that totally dig at the whole situation is just make compromises of misdemeanors go home, don't really? do it again, right. do so security they, service. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, they need the leeway to be able to. Yeah. You know. But here's uh, so the federal government has taken a small step back. <coughs> from irrational enforcement. Mm -hmm. But it clings to a policy that has its origins in racism and xenophobia and whose principal effect has been to ruin the lives of generations of people. That is, you know... And uh, let's take a step forward here out of uh, law enforcement. Because, uh, Dave, you told me, uh, uh, it's a wonderful story. I, I'd love for you to relate it uh, about a young man uh, who was ill. Oh, oh yes. Yes, okay. Um, I read this in the paper last week. Um, the mother of a toddler who was sent home from hospital to die claims her daughter is now making a miraculous recovery thanks to cannabis, to cannabis. Mum, Rachel Garner, 33, was told by doctors that her daughter, Nettie Reinetta, who suffers with cerebral palsy and epilepsy, had just a few days to live after she fell ill with pneumonia. But in a desperate act to save her daughter's life, Rachel resorted to feeding her cannabis oil after reading articles in medical journals which described the controversial drug as a cure. And to the astonishment of doctors... Rachel, a qualified pharmacy technician, claims the 19-month-old toddler has made a remarkable re recovery just one month after she was told she would die. Mama for Rachel from Pensacola, Florida, said, I was in such disbelief when doctors gave me the news that there was simply nothing left that they could do to save my daughter's life. The general consensus among the staff caring for her was that she should go home with hospice services to die peacefully. I couldn't believe it. They didn't even give her a chance. I knew cannabis had helped others. And after doing some research myself, I was convinced that this treatment would not only be the best option, but the safest. It was just days, days, after I gave her the cannabis treatment that her color came back. It was like she woke up. It made such a drastic change the expression of happiness on her face was astounding. There's lots more to this, but right. it's a story that is not uh, singular in my uh, experience, and not just for extremely serious conditions, but also for matters like depression. I, I did an article once for High Times. It was actually the centerfold. High Times used to have a centerfold, and they did a centerfold on lamb's bread. And they considered me a, an expert on that because I lived in Jamaica quite a lot at that time. And it's a Jamaican um, herb. And lamb's bread is uh, considered the 
uh, strain of pot that helps with uh, minor and somewhat major depressions. Because I found out when I was doing this article that it does indeed do that. And one of the things about marijuana, which is a constant amazement to me, are the literally thousands of strains that are available that have very different effects upon people, uh, all of them benign. I just want to finish this little thing by saying that there's a lawyer on television now, uh, frequently on CNN and on ABC, I won't mention her name, who is now the sort of lawyer of, of note on television. She's very smart, and she's extremely beautiful. Uh, last week on television, in a conversation about marijuana, she made a huge plea that no one legalize this substance anywhere and continue the repression because she said it was a gateway drug. And my response was that, to that was to write a quick note to myself about the fact that musicians have used marijuana forever. Normal, nice, non-killer type people have used it forever. But when the SS Gestapo in the late 30s and early 40s wanted to encourage their, um, what do you call them, Guppenfuhrers, I think they were called, uh, who would go out and order the mass execution of Jews, homosexuals, cripples, so forth, some of them became a little bit um, fatigued of doing this. And the leaders of the Gestapo in Munich and Berlin uh, then said, on top of your salary, we will give you a regular amount of cocaine. And if you kill enough people and order the organization of further killing, we will increase your daily intake of cocaine. And I bring this up because no one has ever given marijuana to anybody ever or taken marijuana in any way to do any harm to anyone, as far as I know, unless they were already not playing with a full deck. Whereas these so-called drugs that we've all tried, but we all know have got incredibly dangerous implications, cocaine, heroin, so forth, certainly speed, have only been known uh, with many people to be uh, injurious sometimes when people are crazy. But that story about the Gestapo has been verified That's very heavily wild. and documented. There's the opposition, there's a, there's a dialectic diametrically opposite to the benign uses of marijuana in both medical and psychological and spiritual, most important, and mystical realizations. The diametrical opposite of that is cocaine, say, which in its impure form that we get in the United States uh, can actually lead people to violence. Just wanted to say that, Bruce, because it's been kind of burning in me since I saw this lawyer who mm -hmm. is very beautiful. This, this. And, and I'm saying that because of the propaganda that continues. It's the same, st same story I got when I first started my practice about it being a gateway drug. But there was an article that came out in Scientific America in 1972 that did an in-depth study, pretty much got around the neighborhood. Maybe it's not such a stepping stone. And that's been given up. So this is an example of the last vestiges of these right-wing people that want to go home and drink their alcohol uh, to stop the marijuana legalization. So how do you prove the negative? That's that's easy to, you know. It's like someone arguing would say, it's true what everybody says about you. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about, you know, in specific. So that's what we deal with when this, you know, fighting the marijuana legalization pro platform. Right. But I'll tell you the truth, no one will come out. Typically, you want to debate marijuana legalization, you can't get a cop or a representative from law enforcement to come on the public 
and take on a debate. You should get after, try and get with this woman. That would be well, great. I tend to want she will not come out and want to speak publicly on the debatable situation. Okay, I've done maybe 250 programs, radio and television. They constantly ask me, who can we get to oppose the legalization? And it's just like pulling teeth. I did have a couple arguments with some DAs, but again, that was on total legalization of drugs, not specifically marijuana. So this is what we're dealing with. This is this propaganda. Um, and uh, moving forward, I do want to tell, because uh, we're coming to the close of this show, but I do want everybody to know that um, uh, Bruce has a, a guide to the laws in this country, along with some other stuff in there that's very useful information. And um, it's it's uh, it's the Margolin Guide. Uh, so it's State of California and United States federal uh, marijuana laws and the laws in all 50 states for possession, cultivation, sales, transportation, and so on. And um, so this is a great thing. I You know, I'm in North Carolina. I looked at it and then I went, okay, no, no you can't do that here. Not allowed to do it here at all under any circumstances. Smoke it, you know, hold anything of it. It's just, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not good here. It's really not good. So, um, but if uh, please go to uh, what's the website so they can go get this thing and and know what they're facing. Eight hundred uh, four twenty laws L A W S four two zero laws W A. And that is not it. I'm going to tell you what it is. Okay, the 800-420 laws is, if you're really in trouble, give a call over here and Bruce will help you out. But if you want to just get the old book, go to uh, www.1800420, uh, laws So www.1800420laws.com. Can we get a little piece like we do with Amazon? If anybody, <laughs> you you can give us like two percent or something. You can download. That. You can download it for free, obviously on PDF, right? Oh, okay. And you can read it that's on the different line. That's the difference between Bruce and us, Raghu. What? No, he took this seriously. I'm I'm serious that we need to get a piece of everything that goes down, or we're not going to survive I'm, here. Oh, you can sell that guide. No. <laughs> the one I you, you sell the guy. We're recommending it, and you give us a piece. Anyhow, I, I you... make it available. Anyway, so yeah, yeah, thank you for the plug. But it is something that I value, for not for my practice only, but because I am spreading the news about what the laws are. Mm. So because knowing the law could be the best way to stay out of trouble. So if you just read it, you might have an idea about DUI laws, what you should do if you get stopped, for example, and you got taken a talk recently or not recently. Mm. All these things, we can avoid the trouble if you know what the, what you yeah. what there are. For example, get the DUI, get stopped. You don't have to talk to the cop about where you're going and where you've been and when you used. All those things are voluntary. And they would start asking you when you last time smoked. You give away, you say you've been talking or smoking with them in four hours. That's very detrimental. So read the guide and it'll give you some help. You say what? You say, excuse me, I'm happy to have my attorney speak with you? You got it. Yeah, you told me that. You taught me that a long time ago. (laughs) And I like the way you say it. Excuse me, sir. I'm happy to have you speak with my attorney, and here is his card. (laughs) So get an attorney. You can get Bruce's card and carry it around. Anyhow, uh, hey, we really uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. for coming on. I mean, this is a major uh, subject for everybody. You know, when we talk about what turned, you know, this is a major thing that turned us all on 
in the 60s and so on and turns people on now that they're open to receiving a message that's uh, aside from the senses and the mind. Uh, and marijuana certainly can do that. Like anything else, it can be abused. Everybody knows that. It's just like anything. You can eat too many French fries, too, or Cokes. Although my father, when he was passing, said, Coke is the truth. Okay, and he had been a lifelong vegetarian and health fanatic. So that's what you know. That's another thing. That's a whole other podcast about what happens when you yeah, transfer. Yeah, I, I think we have to, Roger, uh, I think without sounding too, uh, you know, somber about this, I just want to thank uh, Bruce Budry for, on behalf of of lots and lots of people who were in that terror of being arrested or, or whatever happened to them in 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 light of their their benign marijuana usage and. Uh, Bruce and others, of course, but Bruce is leader in this, takes away that terror by, first of all, elucidating what is the law and then defending people who need defending because there's no no need for those people to be in any way incarcerated. So, I mean, you know, I know Bruce is my pal, but I'm going to just I can imagine nothing more useful than doing this in terms of right work. My God, of just getting people out of this horrible corner of going to jail. And the truth oh. is, you know what, Dave? Uh, uh, and this really occurs to me now, Bruce, uh, is that uh, because of your experience in India and being with our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, you know, we, we didn't talk much about that except mm -hmm. for the fact, I mean, Bruce has great stories. He was telling me some of them on a walk we took yesterday. So we'll have to have you back to tell those stories. But Next the time, fact yeah. that you have this experience and you can apply it within the realm of what you do because the level of fear and paranoia that exists with these people who come into your office or call you on the phone is so high that you need you would have to be extraordinarily uh, in your uh, within your heart uh, and connected to who you you know who we really are to be able to have some equanimity and not kick back any, you know, I mean, you know, there's lawyers who do it and, you know, they're just completely cold and, you know, here's the case, give me the 50 grand and we're going to go ahead. Um, you know, so the fact that you're able to do this is a great, as Dave said, a great contribution. Well, I can, I, it is my service. I really am. Uh, that's my motive is to relieve suffering. Honestly, that's really, the, if, that, if it wasn't for that in my practice, I wouldn't go on with it. I feel I am do that. I have represented more marijuana cases than any lawyer in the country. And I've done it successfully over these years. It's really a blessing. I can do that. And what Maharaji reminded us of, we were there, and I heard either him or someone said, he said this, if you have a boon, you should use a boon. You should not give up your boon. Mm. And so that was something I could do. I mean, I was given the gift of being able to defend these cases successfully. And so when I get back from India, I did have to contemplate whether I wanted to go back to practice law because there's a lot of other side of it, you know, a lot of, distasteful but I don't, mm. I don't like confronting cops i don't like to argue in that sense it's, it's hard on some levels to stomach the the hypocrisy of the courts you know see the pain of people going to jail and today not only people are in trouble for what they did but they are in trouble for things that they did they didn't realize was wrong particularly marijuana cases they're like in shock what what did i do wrong because the laws are so ambiguous so it's on top of mm. that they're really paranoid, you know, because yeah, right, it's one right. thing if you do something and know you did something wrong. Other people, times you do something and you think it's within the law and you find out some case came down that contradicts your defense and you're just freaking out. Yeah. But I'm able to hopefully relieve their suffering and assure them that it'll work out and it yeah. does. 
Well, thank you again for for being here, Bruce, and uh, nice seeing you again, uh, David. And uh, we encourage everybody to continue to support what we're doing here at Mind Rolling. Go to mindrollingpodcast.com, and uh, we uh, are happy to have you uh, continue to uh, dialogue with us as well. We love that, and uh, we love the mail, and, uh, you know, the community's building. So thank you, and we will see you next week. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you.